I would say personally that the most important class I ever took was in high school financial literacy course. And I learned so much in that. I didn't I didn't know what a 401k or an IRA or any of that stuff. I didn't know anything even about interest. And I think most kids graduate not knowing a lot of this stuff. That was not even something that was on the table at my high school. And I went to a really great school that offered anything that you could possibly think of except for financial literacy. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlatt. Well, Corey, what do we have today? Buy now, pay maybe. We'll explain the borrowing trend that's taking over online shopping and bring you an update on the politics of inflation. There is still a ton of debate around one of the world's oldest professions. Today, we discuss whether prostitution should ever be legal. School counselors say the pandemic has dealt a ton of damage to kids when it comes to learning loss and their social skills. And finally, Ravi has yet another possibly radical idea to pitch us on. But first things first, today we start with your home office. If you want to stay there, then don't plan on working for Elon Musk. The man who has too many titles to count said that if remote Tesla employees aren't willing to return to the office for a minimum of 40 hours a week, they can, quote, pretend to work somewhere else. Ravi, how do you think this is going to go over with the folks at Tesla? I think, like, no matter what people feel about Elon Musk, I, I think legitimately it's hard not to laugh at that comment. That's like a funny joke. I, I think, like, I think people start with their own experience. We're all forced to work at home at least for a period of time. Some people months. Some people have never gone back to work. We at The Lost Debate have been in person since October, since we started this company. And, you know, we're unique in the sense that we can't really do some of the stuff that we do, like produce a video show anywhere else. And But I think, like, by and large, people start with their own experience. And for me, I have the experience of having people I've managed since the beginning of the pandemic, both at this company and elsewhere, who are amazing at home and are actually way better working remotely. And then there are people who are horrendous working from home and working remotely. My anecdotal experience before we jump into the data is that the variance increases with remote work. If everybody's in the same building, it's like hard to deviate too much from the norm. Whereas if people are at home, there's a pretty dramatic swing. So people get way better mm-hmm. because they have more time. They're not commuting, et cetera. They're happier and healthier because they have their family around. Uh, we will talk about all that data. But then there are other people who can like hide or like are struggling with something and you don't really hear from them. Yeah. We've all had that experience. So so me as a manager, at least I've, I've seen that variance. And, and honestly, as a person, I've, I've lived that variance. I've been better at times, but I've also been way worse. I want to look at some of the data here. Only 8% of Manhattan office employees commute to their workspaces five days a week. 8% of people in in Manhattan. Uh, That was based off of a survey which polled 160 major employers in uh, in Manhattan in late April. And they also found that nearly 80% of companies plan on using a hybrid model of combining basically work in person and remote when the pandemic is fully over with. And only 6% of them did that before COVID-19. So there's basically been a dramatic increase in this. But there's there's been a dramatic decrease in working from home since the pandemic has been coming to an end. Just 7.7% of those employed reported working remotely this past April, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that's down from a pandemic high of 35% back in May of 2020. 16% of companies around the world are 100% remote, while 44% of companies don't allow any remote work. So it seems like, I feel like from the corporate stance, there is this this tendency to try to push people back into the offices, not just Elon Musk, but also you had Eric Adams, who mm-hmm. is basically pushing for people here in New York City to come back when only 8% of them in Manhattan are working full time in, in person. Well, we have a unique issue here in New York also that the subway safety is a big concern for a lot mm-hmm. of people. And I think that's driving particularly low numbers in New York City. But this is obviously a phenomenon that's not affecting everybody equally. Like this is highly skewed 
towards the people who are uh, more highly educated. So people with a bachelor's degree are five times more likely to report working from home than somebody who doesn't. Because obviously if you're a delivery person or you're a service worker, you don't have that option. It's also interesting generationally. I've found that my generation is more willing to go back to the office than some older people. I would say there's a variety of factors, but um, roughly one in five of uh, Gen Z want all in-person work. And half of that one in 10 want all remote work. And then everyone else kind of falls into that hybrid middle. But I think that generally comes down to the fact that a lot of us have never gone into the office consistently. I didn't until I came to work for this company. You know, we don't have families at home, so it can be a little isolating and lonely to be working in like a studio apartment. And so I think there's there's like a kind of cultural shift among younger people to want to actually be in that work environment. And I've even seen like on TikTok, like workwear influencers and stuff right. start to be a thing, <laughs> which is really fascinating. But that's sort of how I felt too, of like, I, I started my career in my apartment in the pandemic and like actually interacting with people is so much more enriching. Do you also think that your generation is more favorable to go into the office because they're so obsessed with the show, The Office. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> you never know. Well, it's funny. On the anecdotal front, I, I had to buy a suit this weekend for a wedding, and I was talking to the guy at the place I bought the suit, just like talking, you know, anticipating the story in a way. And he was basically saying, you know, nobody comes in to buy suits anymore because nobody wears them for work. And I think that gets to part of the thing here. Both workers and companies in, and can save money mm-hmm. by going remotely. So there, there are definitely incentives to keep this going beyond the pandemic, depending on what your company is, right? Like Spotify, Lyft, some of these tech companies are moving mostly, if not fully remote. And it's because they don't have to then have a desk for that person, or they can have like one desk for four people. I know a lot of companies are doing this. Uh, and you know, there's all sorts of expenses about keeping the lights on. And you know, you're going to start seeing people close whole headquarters or whole offices, um, and then just maybe get like co-working arrangements so that you know they have a place where if people need to go into an office, they can. Um, but I, and obviously, people also save money. They don't have to buy the clothes. They don't have to buy their lunch. They don't have to pay for their transportation to go to work. So. A lot of people are saving money, which is why, you know, you show you look at the incentives, you could see that this is not something that's gonna go back to pre pandemic levels. You guys don't wear suits when you work for I know <laughs> you're wearing one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but you mentioned something interesting about Lyft, like the tech companies like Lyft are having their tech employees work from home, but the Lyft drivers can't work from home. Right. And I think that this is really showing a divide between classes here in America. There mm-hmm. are certain jobs that simply cannot be worked from home. First responders can't work from home, construction workers, uh, people who work in like retail, fast food, all sorts of jobs that you just can't do. For, and even there are some high professional jobs like lawyers. And mm-hmm. I mean, there were some courts that were doing some remote work, um, but most of them can't work from home. A surgeon can't work from home. And so I do believe this is causing a little bit of a divide between what I want to say was someone in Reason Magazine that actually classified it as the pajama class, mm-hmm. where you have this new class of people who for, for whatever reason, they have that perfect job, they're like a programmer or something, where they can work from home. But then there's so many jobs across the scale that simply can't do that. And is that really fair for the for the workforce as a whole? Yeah, and it was particularly unfair in the beginning of the pandemic when we had a disease that we didn't really understand that was raging through the population. And then people were still being forced to pack groceries to survive while the rest of us were like having them delivered to our doorsteps. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that was even more intensely tragic in the beginning of the pandemic as well. But part of my question on this now is, I think that this this question of the divide between the pajama class and people who have to show up to work in person was particularly relevant at the time that the pajama class was pushing for restrictions that made it harder for people to open the brick and mortar businesses. Mm-hmm. So that disconnect yeah. was actually super relevant at that time. I wonder at this point how relevant it is, because then my question would be, 
And then what, like if there is a difference between this pajama class and what they have to do for work and people who have to show up to work every single day, is the answer to force other people to go to work that don't need to be there? Like, I don't yeah. think that's what, yeah, I, think I would just want the pajama class to be like, you know, like just be nice to people, you know, tip better. <laughs> yeah. uh, and if you employ people who have to show up to work, like let's price that into the expectation. It'll be interesting to see how that kind of works itself out. But I think that he's completely within his rights to declare that that's his company culture if that's what he wants it to be. Absolutely. It's the financial procrastinator's favorite acronym, BNPL, buy now, pay later. It's an increasingly common option for online shopping and it's just what it sounds like. You get the item you're buying without having to pay the whole price up front. You then end up paying for the item in installments over time. So in theory, hey, Sounds great, but in practice, consumer debt is soaring and the heaviest burden is falling on the youngest buyers in Gen Z. Ricky, I hope that doesn't mean you, right? I have not used buy now, pay later. In fact, I'm like very uh, staunch on this where I just think that credit cards in general are a pretty bad idea for young people. Like open a line of credit, but don't depend on it because I think a lot mm -hmm. of us have gotten totally screwed. But you're right, predominantly 40% um, of Gen Z consumers have used buy now, pay later. And that includes major players like PayPal, Afterpay, Affirm, Klarna, ZipPay. And you get easy approval. You don't, um, no interest, no activation. So essentially like you just slash the price of whatever big purchase you want to make in a quarter and that seems like what you're paying but then you're on the hook and people are not using this for like major investments like a computer or something like the largest uh, percentage is fashion so mm. it's really an unfortunate and really irresponsible way to pay in my opinion yeah i would say like i totally get this phenomenon because if yeah. when i was a kid if i could buy like 12 inch subwoofers for my first car uh or tint my windows or something was what we used to do in staten island i would have absolutely used this for that it would have been horrible for my life and there would have been nobody stopping me from doing it my mom wouldn't like my mom worked two jobs she would have had no idea i was doing it and where the money was coming from it would have totally hamstrung me and i think that the the rate of change here is what's really important not necessarily where the the industry is today but mm -hmm. where it's going this has been growing pretty significantly so the industry is estimated to be worth about 157 billion dollars globally 17 billion dollars in the u.s but some of these companies are seeing huge, huge jumps. So Afterpay, which is an Australian-based company, saw a 200% jump in users between mid-2019 and mid-2020. Mm -hmm. There's a, a Swedish rival named Klarna, which added 1 million customers in the summer of 2020 alone. And we're seeing this happen simultaneously where we're seeing record increases in consumer debt. So consumer de debt jumped $52 billion in March, which is the largest increase on record and in California, 91% of consumer loans made in 2020 were buy now, pay later loans. So this is a growing industry. So that's one thing we need to keep in mind. It's a shifting industry. So their relationship with credit reporting bureaus is actually changing as we speak. So they're actually losing money like a lot of these companies are, are struggling financially because their business model is struggling and they're starting to realize, okay, we actually need to start having a relationship with credit reporting agencies and start mm -hmm. establishing credit for these users. So I actually think the, the the floor underneath these users is about to change. So I actually think that's as interesting as anything else. I actually think it's really bad that kids are taking these things out. I also think that they're they're about to be in for a rude awakening because they're about to meet you know, the, the big credit boogeyman that we've been living with for our entire lives. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that's gonna mean that in my opinion that they're, this generation, which is struggling under so much of the pandemic already, are potentially also gonna you know, enter adulthood with uh, black marks on their credit. Yeah, Equifax and TransUnion are coming for these kids eventually. Um, and I think another thing here that 
is really confusing to me because this system kind of reminds me of layaway. Like back in the day, 100%. my mom used to go to like Kmart back when they used to have the blue light sale and like Walmart and places like that. And she would go to this little booth and pay like $12, $13 and then she would just walk away. And I was like, mom, what are you doing? You didn't get anything. She's like, no, I'm going to buy something, but I'm putting money down on it. The difference with layaway was that she had to pay that whole thing yeah. before they actually gave her the product. Here, these people are getting the product based off of like an initial payment or sometimes I think they can even just get the product before they even make their first payment. Yeah. yeah essentially you'd be like you're kind of you're forum shopping so you're like all right i've i've reneged with this company i'm going to go to this next company and obviously the companies are going to start talking to each other which yeah. essentially is how credit reporting even came about in the, in the first place yeah. so um you know there was scott galloway from pivot and nyu has done some really good reporting on this and he quotes his colleague aswan demodoran who says that the best regulation is life lessons so in a way i get that but scott galloway was saying that would be I, he'd be amenable to that argument if we did a really good job of teaching financial literacy to kids. Mm -hmm. But he was yeah. saying basically you're more likely to take a yearbook class than you are financial literacy in school. I would say personally that the most important class I ever took was in high school. Uh, shout out to Mr. Aquista. He had this this year-long um, financial literacy course that he did on his own. It wasn't required by the school. And I learned so much in that. I didn't, I didn't know what a 401k or an IRA or any of that stuff. I didn't know anything even about interest. And I think most kids graduate not knowing a lot of this stuff. That was not even something that was on the table at my high school. And I went to a really great school that offered like essentially anything that you could possibly think of except for financial literacy. And I think I've been fortunate that moving to New York right after college, that makes you grow up a lot faster. But I'd imagine that a lot of my friends my age have haven't had those formative experiences. And when you look at the statistics of how people feel looking back on these purchases that they make, 57% have regretted a purchase and 56% have fallen behind on payments. And the people who are taking out these loans tend to be lower income and also tend to have higher income volatility month to month. So they're making these commitments without really knowing how much money they're going to make going forward and what percentage of their income these payments are going to represent. So this is, this is really scary. And I think it, it's totally demonstrative of the fact that my generation just is not financially literate and we were not taught to be. Yeah, let me give some stats on how this industry is doing. So Klarna, one of the biggest companies, racked up $700 million in losses last year. 65% of that was from credit defaults. Affirm, one of their competitors, lost about the same in a 12-month period while their marketing expenses tripled to $427 million. And if you track these stocks, they went super up during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They've come back down, in many cases, lower than they were when they launched. And there are players like SoftBank, if you, if you watch the WeWork TV show, some of these players that are just pouring money into high growth companies are involved here. And if you start to put this all together and you say, all right, like who's investing in these companies? It's places like the SoftBanks. They're investing in a lot of high risk companies that I think are struggling, particularly in this sort of tech dip uh, right now. And, and their bets are starting to, you know, the, the bill is starting to come due on these bets. And so not only do I think that these companies are at risk, but I think their funders are at risk because they have so many high risk investments. Yeah, the debt is going to eventually catch up with them. And that's one thing the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is looking into. They've actually announced a probe into Affirm, Afterpay, Klarna, uh, PayPal, and Zip, basically asking them to submit data on how much debt people are incurring from these programs. And so, I, and then Equifax announced last December that they are going to start developing a formal process for BNPL companies to report short-term loan data to be included on credit reports. So the debt is going to catch up on both ends. It's going to catch up with these companies and it's eventually going to catch up with a lot of these people taking out these, these loans in the first place. Totally agree. 
U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admitted on CNN this week that she was wrong on inflation. In March of last year, Yellen classified inflation as a small risk that was manageable. I think I was wrong then about um, the path that inflation um, would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted uh, energy and food prices and um, supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that I didn't at the time didn't fully understand. That was before, of course, inflation soared to 8.5% in March of this year. Ravi, should we cut the Biden administration some slack here or does this admission reflect a failure to act in a timely manner? I think like one, I like it when anybody admits a mistake. So I think I recognize that and I think that's a mature thing to do. At the same time, it's a pretty big mistake. And it may be the biggest mistake this administration has made is not taking seriously inflation. And I think their explanation doesn't make sense to me. So a, a follow-up comment from a Treasury spokesperson clarified that Yellen's comments were in the context of certain, like, quote-unquote, unforeseen events that happened. Like, okay, they knew that the pandemic was you know, subsiding, but they didn't know a bunch of other things is what they're implying. And I just don't buy that. We knew that there were pandemic bottlenecks. Uh, we knew that COVID spending was coming on the horizon. This came on the, 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 the con in the context of the administration dramatically increasing spending. And then there are a lot of credible people who knew that it wasn't just a question of goods, but it was a question of services, so people, and it's a question of resources, like before they even become refined goods, like people like Jeremy Grantham that we've quoted on, on this show. And it makes you wonder, do we need... Like we need to start asking, like, who are these people in these jobs? Like, we need fewer academics, fewer economists, more people that are like practical, like supply chain experts, for example, mm -hmm. in these positions, because it seems there's a level of practicality that's missing. Yeah, and to give some context to this March 2021 moment where she said that it was a small risk, this was after Biden was passing a $1.9 trillion relief package. And I think if you're going to spend that much as a government, you want to ensure that you can also withstand the unforeseeable future of what happens internationally. And so while I do agree that I appreciate she is admitting a mistake, that's a pretty enormous mistake to make. And I think it's something that certainly almost every libertarian has been jumping up and down about for quite a while with this government spending is that this is going to come back to bite us. And then it ended up just colliding with so many other things that happened in the world at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out on inflation for sure. There may be no profession out there quite as stigmatized as sex work for pretty obvious reasons. You have this combination of moral panic, taboo, stereotypes, and genuine questions of free will versus exploitation. It's an incredibly thorny issue, which of course means we're obligated to talk about it here. Ricky, where do you want to start on this? Recently in the news, there's an effort from um, strippers in L.A. to unionize, which is uh, actually a pretty big deal in a historical sense. They're from Star Garden Topless Dive Bar, and they're citing safety violations, policy violations, customers recording them without their consent, and the security failing to step in. And this would be the first time that strippers have unionized since 1996, and they would come under this umbrella called Strippers United, which is federally recognized, um, but obviously 
obviously not that active, um, but part of their stance is decriminalizing sex work more broadly. And of course, sex work spans from like a stripper to a prostitute and everything in between, and also all the digital kind of outgrowths of that that have happened, especially during the pandemic. But um, I think this more largely gets into a conversation about should prostitution be legalized? Should it be decriminalized? There's a bunch of different uh, pathways that we could potentially take and different countries around the world have taken different stances on this issue. But I think it's it's a pretty thorny moral issue. It's a thorny cultural issue. And it's it's definitely a difficult one to breach. Yeah, I would say I would count myself as generally a skeptic of a lot of unionization efforts, but this is a situation where it's as clear a case as possible for a union. Like these are some of the most vulnerable people we have in our mm-hmm. society. You know, I was looking at their online petition and this is what they had to say. They said, at the club, we navigate a room which is regularly full of belligerently drunk men who push our boundaries and often scare us. And this is just like these places can be hellscapes. There's a lot of leverage mm-hmm. on behalf of the the owners and bosses, especially because often in these places, there's also a l- illegal activity taking place, particularly prostitution, as you talked about, Ricky. And I think that's why it's important for us, and that's why we're doing this, to then address this in the, in the largest context possible, like mm-hmm. not just strippers, but prostitution generally. Is it time for this country to legalize or at least decriminalize prostitution. Mm -hmm. And so just to give a sense of what's going on around the world, um, it is legalized in parts of Nevada. I think it's eight counties, not including Las Vegas, the Netherlands, Denmark, Germany, a ton of other countries as well, um, and decriminalized only in regions of Australia, Belgium, and New Zealand. And I think um, one thing that seems sort of counterintuitive is what decriminalization versus legalization actually looks like in this case, because I think decriminalization is actually the, the stronger stance to take, because that essentially means you're just not prosecuting people for sex work in general, versus legalization means you're putting all these legal guardrails around it. You're saying these are the very specific circumstances in which this is allowed. And then there's also a third uh, kind of route that some people are advocating, which is called asymmetrical criminalization, which would mean you wouldn't prosecute women or, or sex workers in general, but you would prosecute either pimps or the people that are buying them. So you're still kind of fighting against the market, but you're not fighting against the people that have kind of fallen prey to it. Yeah. What's interesting is in Nevada, which is like, I think the most robust example of this in the US, it is highly regulated. I think it has to be in the context of a brothel and there are all sorts of rules around, you know, medical issues and testing and things like that. I think that the case for either decriminalizing or making this legal is pretty strong. Number one is that there's massive police abuse of power in situations where they have the leverage, right? And you have like really bad incentives here. Like for instance, in New York, 80% of sex workers say they've been threatened or experienced violence. uh, And a really high percentage of them say that they've had some kind of weird interaction with police, whether it was Mm -hmm. an all out assault or something short of that. So you have uh, 27% said that they had experienced police violence in New York. And so, uh, and if you look at what happens if you decriminalize this in in New Zealand, 57% of sex workers said police interactions improved following decriminalization. And this also like gets to the point of like when things operate in the shadows, other bad things can happen, yeah. right? So you, uh, if you're avoiding arrest, you're going to operate in isolated areas where people can't see it as much. You're not going to report crime against yourself if it also implicates you in a crime. And it makes it hard to screen clients. Like if it's legalized, then there's some kind of predictability. You can have an online process. You can hire staff to help you out. You can band together and it can make the whole thing safer. I think that there's a lot of things we're not considering here when it comes to the psychology 
behind sex work. Uh, you just described some of the strip clubs that these strippers had to work at as hellscapes. And stripping is totally legal. So if stripping is legal and these strip clubs are hellscapes, why would we want to encourage a form of sex work that goes even further? And I think we think that by, by, by making it legal, it's going to somehow make it better or safer. When actually it just encourages the deviant behavior in the first place. I want to read this quote for you real quick. Normalizing the act of buying sex debases men by assuming they are entitled to access to women's bodies for sexual gratification. If paying for sex is normalized, then every young boy will learn that women and girls are commodities to be bought and sold. That was President Jimmy Carter. I believe that we're talking about a complete breakdown in the social structure, but we're talking about people's bodies. We're talking about purchasing someone's body. That gets into borderline human bondage and slavery analogies there. And I don't see how in any world that would be more helpful for our society. I think there's a really great case to be made that the majority of people who find themselves in sex work are there because they're vulnerable and they don't have anywhere else to go. Um, and then there's also the, the more libertarian sort of argument that adults who can choose to do what they want with their body and who is the government to tell them what they can and cannot do. But I think that for me here, the biggest issue is what happens when we regulate vices, which we've done in so many different iterations as a government throughout history. And it goes underground, it gets darker, it gets more dangerous. And, you know, it's prostitution's called the the oldest profession on the books or whatever the phrase is. And I think it's not going to go away. It doesn't go away when you criminalize it. And so while I'm not in favor of decriminalizing it and just letting it go off the rails, I think legalizing it and making sure that it's happening in in areas and in contexts where the people involved are the most protected possible is a better route to me. But I think that that also means like making the bar exceptionally high and also making sure that even if that means mandating that sex workers in general go through a psychological exam to make sure that they're actually like talking to a therapist and actually consenting to this and not being manipulated. I completely agree with you that I think that there there are um, really dangerous circumstances. And I think that legalizing it and making it a very specific context in which this can happen is the best way to protect people against something that I think is an unfortunate fact of human society, that this is something that's going to happen. But I think it's a almost constant reality. The pushback there is that you just said that prostitution is one of the oldest professions in the world, which it is. Slavery was also one of the oldest practices in the world. We outlawed it and we haven't had a ton of problems with it. I mean, human trafficking is still a big issue and slavery is still a big issue in other parts of the world. But just this, this argument that if we outlaw something, it's never going to end, that that could be used as an argument to not outlaw pretty much anything, rape, murder, anything you can think of. I mean, I simply think that when you look back at like the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, that was supposed to be liberating, right? It was supposed to be liberating for us to be freed from the constraints of marriage and things like that. But all we have seen since then is skyrocketing, skyrocketing divorce rates, broken families. Um, but I also think that like there's this question of where do people draw the line when it comes to people being exploited right like if you if you work in a coal mine in west virginia you're probably being exploited now we don't outlaw that if you're somebody who's doing delivery driving here in new york city or you're working a double shift or whatever your job is even you might be a nurse's aide and you're being exploited so the question is where do we draw the line in society and i think the difference with slavery and this is that there are people who choose sex work because they want to do sex work now we could debate 
what percentage of those people are there and how many are forced into the profession, et cetera. But like the existence of people who want to do this work, want to feel fulfilled in it matters to me a lot. But also the fact that like the data here seems to suggest that there's some good things that can happen from legalization. So for example, when Scotland outlawed solicitation in 2007, rape and assaults doubled. And I think this this gets to a little bit about um, your like, I think really valid point, Corey, which is like, if these other, if these strip clubs are hellscapes, and to clarify, not all of them are, but a lot of them are, they're legal, then why would this be any different? I think two reasons. One is, one of the reasons why strip clubs are problematic is because other legal activities happening there, namely prostitution, which gives the owners leverage over the people working in them. Two is that I actually think the way out of strip clubs being hellscapes in part has to do with the transparency and like the legality that surrounds the 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 stuff that isn't illegal so for example they wouldn't be able to unionize we wouldn't be reading this story uh they wouldn't be recognized for instance by the national labor relations board which they are if it was illegal and so i actually think some of the 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 improvements upon their conditions will only be possible because they're legal on a moral level like i completely agree with you corey I, i think it's a really difficult topic to talk about and to endorse which i don't But, you know, my question to you is, given the fact that there are tons of sex workers in this country, there's tons of prostitutes who are doing this, who are getting caught by the police and sometimes who end up being incarcerated and criminalized because of it. Would you support then like this asymmetrical decriminalization effort where we would go after the like a pimp that was exploiting them or the person who was buying that buying the sex and not the woman or the sex worker? I mean, I think that makes more sense because we don't want to put any more fuel into the prison industrial complex. But at the same time, I just simply don't think prostitution in any form is healthy for society. I don't think pornography is healthy, healthy for society. I think a lot of these things are one of the reasons why we have so many problems with relationships, with development. And I, I personally think if I, if I had my way, I'd, I'd eradicate all of it somehow. But I think indulging in it, saying it's legal, I just feel like that's going to create excessive amounts of it. And I think that there's going to be long term psychological and social implications to that that really, you know, are outside of the realm of just the legal ease of it all. It's more about how this affects us as as a as a culture. Well, I suppose the question then becomes like, do you think that if we legalize it, that means that a ton of people who weren't already oh, transacting yeah. will begin to? Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe there will be people all over this country who will say, OK, it's not illegal anymore. So it's easier for me to do this. It's easier for me to get away with this. I think when, whenever you remove that from it, there will be a ton of people who thought about it who want to do it more. I definitely think it will increase the amount of people engaging in prostitution. I, I actually agree with that being a possible and very likely outcome of this and, and still believe in doing this. I don't think that this is a societally healthy thing necessarily. I think it's a prevalent and an immediate thing that is happening right now. And I guess for me, just the point of disagreement is that I think that needs to be, if we want to dissuade that, that needs to be cultural and and social and not legal necessarily, because I think as soon as it becomes legal, then you, then you potentially endanger people in the process, but. It's a, it's a valid point. All over the country, school counselors say students are struggling with their social skills coming back from the pandemic. 
That's no surprise, really. But reading some of the testimonials from recent surveys, like the one in the New York Times, lends new credence to the extent of the problem. Ravi, what was your reaction when you read some of the feedback that was coming from these counselors? Yeah, so this is 362 counselors being interviewed in 49 states who work with all age groups. So we're talking about a mixture of K to 12 students and students in urban schools, rural schools, suburban schools. So we're talking about a pretty wide spectrum. First of all, I just want to shout out the New York Times for this reporting. I think this is really good stuff and it's the kind of stuff we need in education reporting because it's really just going right to the sources and saying you know what what are they saying and these quotes are really startling i wouldn't say they're totally surprising but when you hear the details it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I'll just read a few of these. This is from Jennifer Fine, a high school counselor in Chicago. She says, something that we continuously come back to is that our ninth graders were sixth graders the last time they had a normative, uninterrupted school year. Developmentally, our students have skipped over crucial years of social and emotional development. You could look at other quotes that talk about lack of stamina, more frustration, less flexibility, less effort, less perseverance, more escape and avoidance behavior, more impulsive behavior, struggles with emotional regulation, uh, struggles with teamwork, people struggling to make friends. I put this all together to say this is a group of people entering the workforce and adulthood that are not going to be prepared for what they're what they're in for. And as a society, we've really let them down. And I, I almost like this is crazy. This is not my, my wild idea. I almost think we should add grades to the end of high school to fix what has happened over the past few years with this pandemic because these kids are just not ready. But the problem with that solution is they're still gonna be 19, 20, 21. They're still gonna hit those older ages in right. which I'm not sure if that socialization is quite possible. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I agree. I to say, I agree that this is great reporting, but for me, this is like too little, too late, to be honest. There have been people who have been sounding the alarm bells about what this was going to do to kids developmentally for such a long time in this pandemic now. And I think that we were really fortunate that we had a disease that generally spared children with a few very identifiable exceptions of kids that could have been afforded different uh, like remote work options or at least different isolation options. And I think that we've really committed just like such a such a crime against these kids by allowing them to, in some cases to be remote or out of school for longer than their parents were at mm -hmm. work. Yeah. And that was just completely nonsensical. There are people, there have been people, myself included, have been talking about this for years that this was what was going to happen. And now we've seen 94% of these counselors are saying that kids have increased anxiety and depression. And I think that we haven't even begun to conceive of what the consequences of this is going to be. Yeah, and we did some reporting on this. Uh, we did an episode where we interviewed people in San Francisco about their school board ahead of that recall effort. And San Francisco was one of the last cities to come back to in-person learning. And what you saw is that there was this couching of progressive, like that it was progressive somehow to keep the schools closed, where, you know, through that reporting and, and generally speaking, I think my frustration was this was like a totally regressive act to keep Absolutely. kids out of school as long as he did. I think there, there are a lot of listeners who, who probably were like, yeah, first couple weeks, maybe months of the pandemic, we didn't know a lot. So you keep schools closed. That was my position. But with each passing day, you know, you were deep into the following year in San Francisco where they really didn't have any plan. And that's almost mm -hmm. criminal. Do you feel like that was more because of the teacher unions rather than like some some real genuine concern for the children themselves combo of i would say teachers union influence you can you can dig into san francisco in particular uh and you'll you'll see like what happened there the teachers unions not only backed the school board members 
who were delaying the opening, but they also stood in the way of support for what these these learning hubs that the city was setting up uh, outside of the traditional system. So they they did not support those learning hubs, and, and, and in part, that's why those learning hubs didn't expand. And so that that was bad. You could look at Chicago, a bunch of other cities where this kind of stuff happened. Also, like liberals are, are I think, more they're they're more aggressive on pandemic closures generally even when unions aren't involved and i think it's safe to say as somebody who's called myself as a progressive that uh the larger progressive movement went too far on closures generally not just schools and and i get the motivation but like to me i'm way more sympathetic to somebody who maybe went 10 percent 20 percent too far than somebody who went 50 60 70 percent too far as some of these school districts did the impacts have been just really aggravating towards the disparities that we already had in society. And for months on end, you had private schools on one side of the street and public schools on the other side of the street where one school was open and the other one was closed. And kids that didn't have parents that were at home to take care of them or to teach them or to tutor them through Zoom kindergarten. Like, I, I just think that, like, it's great to see people reckoning with the the consequences and trying to come up with solutions. But I, I mean, it's just something that's really enraging to years later be thinking about this now. Well, to, let's talk about just very quickly what to do next. Uh, there was a companion piece that talked about eight possible solutions, restarting group activities, hiring more staff, offering places to take a break, teaching social emotional skills, using therapy tools, limiting technology, supporting parents and teachers, expanding community healthcare. And so these are all ideas that I think make sense with or without this. Like, obviously, some of these are really vague and you have to go into the details. There are a couple of things I want to point out, or actually one thing I want to point out in particular that I think is underrated, which is limiting technology use in schools. Mm-hmm. When I when I was running schools, I used to have kids check their cell phones at the doors because there's this there's myth out there that without the cell phone, a kid can't deal with an emergency. I'm like, we went to school forever. It's like, just mm-hmm. call the front office. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are all these like, these rationales for why kids need their phones and then schools are starting to trick themselves into thinking that the phones are somehow part of the learning experience and all that. And now they're overly dependent on these laptops. I would be very clear as a school when a laptop is needed and it isn't. And I would be really strict about the time spent a day without these things because the kids have been on these things for now years without the socialization, without Mm -hmm. thinking clearly, without staring at a screen, et cetera. And as just as a educator, I implore schools to create time throughout the day without technology. And I would make it a lot of time. I will add, though, with the increase we've seen in school shootings and school violence, sometimes these cell phones, if they get to the proper authorities in time, could mitigate some of the tragedy from those types of events. But I do I totally agree that the access to cell phones is definitely ruining a lot of the socialization skills and the education that these kids are receiving. But also, is it more than just the pandemic? I feel like there are other factors at play here, such as just how our society has grown politically speaking. I mean, uh, my, my wife has been doing some some mental health counseling for children down in Alabama because the school counselors are just not equipped to deal with some of these issues. So she's been going in with, with some of her um, mentors doing some counseling. And what she's finding is that a lot of these kids are coming with a lot of anger from home. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a lot of it is political anger. Uh, she's having kids eight, nine years old saying things like, well, you know, if Biden wasn't in office, I wouldn't feel like this. And it's like, that's not, that's not reflective of how you feel. That's reflective of how your parents feel. Now, I mean, adults can, you know, have whatever political you know opinions they want to have, but so much of that is trickling down to the children. And a lot of these children are getting angry about issues that they don't even 
even understand. And that is causing cultural differences. It's causing social divides, racial problems. So I think a lot of that plays into just all these other horrible things that happen at the same time with the pandemic and uh, Ukraine and all these different things happening at the same time. I think there's just a lot of general anxiety in this world beyond just COVID-19. And it's all just happening at the same time. It's just like a, a perfect storm of horribleness. Here. Well, Ricky, you've done a lot of reporting on this. Like, obviously, the technology and students use their technology has affected their mental health. And that's obviously at work here. My opinion is it's there are many things at work. The yeah. pandemic being a big one. I think those are definitely factors. And I don't think they can be parsed out from the pandemic itself. I think they're all kind of coming together. But some of that political anxiety might be the result of the fact that rather than having school environments that kids are going to, their entire world essentially became their parents and their political issues and also social media and all the news that you get just pounded with constantly and as a child coming up in that context where it sounds like the whole world is ending in every single way in every single corner of it that's a really kind of catastrophic and depressing way to grow up yeah absolutely well hopefully these children can get the help that they need because they're gonna have to take care of us one day. So uh, <laughs> so I think I think we might be screwed. <laughs> and finally today, Ravi is back with another one of his brilliant, possibly radical ideas. Is this gonna be more or less radical than last time? Ravi, what do you have for us I think today? this is gonna seem more radical, but it's not. And it's gonna seem like I'm joking, but I'm actually deadly serious about this. Okay. And here's my proposal. My proposal is that, and don't laugh at this, I think people should be able to, at the very least, pee anywhere in public at any time. Now, this could seem like a joke, but let me give you some statistics what? here. Uh, let me give you some statistics here. In the United States, there are eight public toilets per 100,000 residents. That is That places us pretty low on the scale of developed countries. You know, Iceland, for instance, has 56 per 100,000 people. Now, we've talked about homelessness before. In this country right now, and, and for instance, New York, there are four per 100,000 people. Now, in this country right now, it is it, at times, especially if you live on the streets or you have limited access to resource, but this can affect anybody who happens to not be near their house. If you don't have that money to go into that Starbucks and pay for that coffee, et cetera, or that's not accessible to you, you literally don't have anywhere to go to the bathroom and it's criminalized. And so there are certain circumstances here that are just absolutely absurd. So Ferguson, Missouri, Walter and Ratania Rice took their children to a city park. Their two-year-old son needed to pee. There was no toilet around. So Walter Rice took his son behind a bush where his son urinated and he urinated as well next to his son. He was arrested for child neglect and held in jail and pled guilty. There was a case in Florida of a welder named uh, Juan Montemoris who was fined and ordered to move away from his home uh, because 19 years earlier, he was uh, arrested for public urination and was then uh, re- had to register as a sex offender. I can go through these details. It's absurd, never mind the everyday criminalization of fines and tying people up in the court system, et cetera. So here's my proposal. In the United States, if you do not have, and let's pick a number, let's say, let's get to Latvia, which is 25 toilets per 100,000 people. If your city doesn't have 25 toilets per 100,000 people, it should be more than that, then it should be legal. And I would say constitutionally legal, because I actually think that there's some basis in the constitution that there's a deprivation of liberty going on here. If you don't get to a certain number, then it should just be de facto legal. And it, people shouldn't be guessing whether like peeing in public gets them registered as a sex offender or gets an eye roll from a police officer. That seems like a huge variation. You want a constitutional amendment to make it where we can pee wherever we want. No, I actually think we have that constitutional amendment ready. So there's in the constitution and the 14th amendment, there is this provision that is hotly disputed, which says that you shall not, the government shall not abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. And, and the government has interpreted that in wildly different ways over time. And this includes that you have a right to access the seat of government, to seaports, 
to use the navigable navigable waters of the United States to enter public land. So they've 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 interpreted this in their own ways. And to me, I know this sounds funny, but like the ability to just use the restroom without being arrested, like is something you cannot help. And so like if you're living on the streets in New York, for example, like you literally cannot help it. And like as a society, we either need to provide a place for people to do that or let them be. Now, obviously, that's different than like exposing yourself and all that. And and there are clear rules on the books for that. And it's kind of absurd that I walk every day. I live near the Bowery Mission. I walk here and people's dogs are peeing all over the damn sidewalk, which is urine. It's no, it's no better or worse for society than a human doing it. But if a homeless person does that, then they get they could get arrested and sometimes do get arrested. And so that just seems like a horrific double standard and a terrible use of societal resources. Do we know how often like homeless people do get it, arrested? It varies by city, but part of the issue here is this is a tool to clear homelessness. So in certain cities, people look the other way. So New York a couple years ago, they're arresting people more for this. Now, because of people like Alvin Bragg, they're arresting people less for this probably a good thing. Like, obviously, I've been critical of Alvin on some other decriminalization efforts. I think this is a good one. In other cities, though, like you can pick some cities down south, for example, that have, quote unquote, been successful at clearing homelessness. This is one of the tools in their toolbox. They're waiting for people to break these laws. They're arresting them for this because this is part of the larger sort of context of what it means to be homeless, like just criminalizing a way of life. And so that's an easy way to get people out of your city. You know, I, I totally understand what you're saying about the criminalization of homeless people. And, and this is that's terrible. And when I hear this story about this guy who, who just had to pee in a bush and got, you know, uh, registered as a sex offender, that's insane. Um, but here's my thing. If you're a business owner, right, do you want someone peeing on the side of your business? I think you have to have like designated areas mm -hmm. or maybe like an increase in porta potties or something like yep. that. Uh, but just peeing everywhere. I mean, this is a society we're living in. Right? Something well, needs to change though. Also, oh, is it just number one that you're advocating for? Well, I, that's I, a big question. I think it's an important question. I would say for the purposes of this exercise, I am only advocating for okay, that. But well, if, the if the issue is um, an access to a toilet, then things have to happen. What's yeah. the difference? Well, I, I mean, I could go there, but uh, <laughs> like, I, you have I have to. a question for you on this. So first of all, I actually think that not only the constitutional provision on this, and I'll, I promise you, Ricky, I'll come back around to your question. I think not only is the constitution pretty clear on this, but I think like in court, if like if if homeless people had good lawyers and they could afford lawyers, then uh, they could and sometimes do fight these things. But it's incredibly hard because both in American and British law, there is a provision that that of defense, basically like a, you know, it's almost common law to say that if there's something that you are forced to do and you can't prevent it mm -hmm. uh, and in reasonable good faith, you've you've tried to mitigate it, right? Uh, like you're trying to go to the restroom somewhere else. You're trying to find a public restroom, but you can't, for example. Mm -hmm. If there's something that you literally cannot help and you are forced to do it, like, like let me pick, for example, like you have to drive off the side of a road to avoid hitting a pass one person and then you hit another person, for example, right? Then that is a defense in common law against whatever you're charged with if in good faith you truly like have done whatever you can to avoid that. Now, the problem is, these people aren't lawyered up, you know, these are homeless people. And often like this is one tool 
in among many tools. And as I described, it's used to just clear people out. And like my, my answer to you is I would start with this. I, there's practicalities involved with the two that are different. Like I do believe the same principle applies, but the same logistics are different on these two things. Uh, but I also think that the hope here isn't that we just have people peeing all over the streets. It's that this is a wake up call to cities to invest in this infrastructure and, and shout out to David Ferrier. Uh, at the Armchair Experts podcast, like this, this is this is what got me thinking about this. He did a whole episode last week on just how horrendous the U.S. is compared to a lot of other countries on this. So, like, obviously, like th my vision here isn't some utopia of people peeing wherever they want on the streets. It's that we have some freaking public toilets, you yeah. know, in a country that spends as much money on infrastructure as we do. Sure, I'd be okay with a a provision that requires that at least there are like shelters or something that someone has the option to go to. But I think that especially in a very densely populated city like New York, you get really gross really fast. Yeah. The middle ground is the jugs, right? Like, you know, like milk gallon jugs, like <laughs> truckers, when they have to go, they just go in the jug. Or Amazon workers. This is also and, a and very male-centric conversation here, by the way. Oh yeah, no, no, that's actually very true. I don't think this, this is gonna really work very well for most women, Ravi. I would be, I mean, I'm honestly, I would be fine with women taking advantage of this too. Like part but, of this- But, 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 like, but, but how? <laughs> logistically a little different it's a little logistically less different but part of the reason why is because of societal expectations certain things there's some logistical difference but there are also different societal <laughs> expectations but but you got to remember some of these cases are people peeing behind a bush mm -hmm. right so like this is not just somebody peeing on the side of a building right like there yeah. a lot of these cases are public parks or something like that and to me like here's my test if you're a city that taxes people as much as new york as spends as much money as new york and you don't have public facilities somebody peeing behind a bush to me is totally acceptable until you fix that issue yeah it should be like a don't see don't arrest type thing like if it's behind a bush behind a wall that's fine but you can't just I would be agree like to that you can't just be like in the middle of 34th street just just peeing on herald square like you can't do that well well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stipulate to that but i i like your compromise okay well, we want to thank you all for listening and watching today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.